Well, good morning. Welcome to Springbrook Community Church. Uh, we're glad you're with us on our 4th of July weekend. It's a time for us to uh, celebrate uh, the freedom that we have in this country. It's a time for us to celebrate that freedom. It's a time for us to remember those uh, that have sacrificially given for us uh, so that we can experience um, that freedom. It's a time for us as a nation just to remember this uh, Independence Day, and we're glad you're uh, here with us. Uh, you should have received a program on the way into the service. I want to invite you to uh, take that out with me for a moment. On the inside of that is a welcome slip, and you can go ahead and just tear that off now. And if you are a first or second time guest with us here at Springbrook, there's a place for you to indicate that there at the top. And then uh, you can share with us as much information as you feel comfortable sharing. And then be sure and let us know how you heard about us. And then if we can pray for you or your family, uh, there's a place for you to share that uh, down at the bottom as well. And if you are a regular attender here at Springbrook, we'd appreciate it if you just put your first and last name on there, uh, the names of any adults that are with you. Uh, just to let us know you're here, and uh, that would be uh, fantastic. Today we're starting a new series uh, through the book of Psalms. We're looking at cries from the heart. Uh, Pastor Dan is uh, on uh, vacation, and so I know he would appreciate um, your prayers. I'm Richard Wood. I'm the associate pastor here at Springbrook, and so we're glad you're with us as we start this new series. Um, today we're going to be looking at uh, cries of worship from Psalm 57. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the way that David modeled Worship for us. You see, in this country, we're free to worship anyone, anywhere, anytime we want. Um, but this morning, we want to look at how we um, worship God, how we work our, our uh, how we worship our Creator, uh, from Psalm 57. And uh, worship is not something uh, to be taken lightly. I think that uh, we come together uh, each weekend just to kind of celebrate um, together. And I, I think there's a sense um, that we can uh, somewhat, you know, just take that for granted. Um, we can worship anywhere. It's kind of a right. Um, that we have. Um, it's a gift that we've been given, but it's something that we're entitled to do. And I think we can take that for granted. Uh, for example, listen to some of the things that happened uh, across the globe last week. In China, uh, the police were on the lookout last week for some members of the uh, Shohang House Church. And uh, some of the youth that they were following had gotten together uh, to play basketball, of all things, at the uh, Beijing Institute of Technology. And as soon as they gathered together, uh, the police kind of swarmed on them and arrested them all and took them all down uh, to the police station for just because of, you know, they were known to be Christians and they had gathered together in a public place. And so uh, just really persecuted for their faith, just as something as simple as getting together to play basketball. In N Nigeria last week, uh, a suicide bomber uh, drove their car uh, into a church. They didn't quite make it, but they did manage to kill two people, 40 others, uh, in an attack on Christ's chosen church of God. And in a separate attack on a neighboring church, uh, a gunman uh, killed at least uh, two uh, Christians at that local church. In Laos, um, two weeks ago, a young woman was persecuted by her family for converting to Christianity. Um, a 17-year-old girl named Fum uh, had her Bible burned, her hymn book uh, burned, and her family uh, just kind of attacked her, threatened her life if she didn't uh, make a commitment to recant um, her faith. You know, persecution happens all across the globe. And so this is something that we've been um, blessed with. You know, in the last six months, 22 churches in Indonesia have been forced to close uh, due to a mounting pressure uh, by local governments. You know, interestingly enough, there was a group of Muslims uh, that had gathered together that were holding peace rallies uh, and just kind of were bringing about that pressure on the government to shut these um, Christian churches down. You know, it's interesting because if you think about it, all across the U.S., all across our country, um, we freely get together and we worship God without the fear of somebody breaking in our doors and hauling us off. We live without the fear of somebody driving their car into our front door to, to blow up the church because of uh, you know, persecution uh, against Christianity. I think it really is something that um, we need not to take 
um, for granted. We can worship because of the freedoms that we have uh, in this country. And we, we have the freedom to worship wherever we want, wherever we want, and uh, however way we want to do that. But it kind of begs the question, when we come together to worship God, you know, what should that look like? How do we worship uh, the God that we worship, that we find in Scripture? Last week, Pastor Dan looked at the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in the life of every believer. It doesn't just dwell in a temple like he did in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, be, you know, because of who we are in Christ, uh, the Spirit of God indwells every believer. And so in one sense, um, you're kind of like a little mobile church. You, know, you can take God with you anywhere. You can worship God anywhere. And that is a gift. That's one of the freedoms that we have as a result of who we are in Christ. God no longer resides in the temple. He resides in the life uh, of every believer. And as a result... We can worship God in our car, in our home. You know, we can worship to get. We can gather together corporately and worship anywhere. But God, in His uh, part of His plan, has gifted us and blessed us with this beautiful facility at Springbrook, and so we have an opportunity to come together this morning um, to corporately um, to worship God and give Him thanks. But how do we worship? You know, what does that look like? On the inside of your program is a uh, green insert. If you would um, go ahead and take that out with me for a moment. At the top is a passage from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, the interesting thing about that word worship is, is that it could also be translated service, both in the Old and the New Testament. We see that word being used interchangeably. And so that could just as easily read, this is your spiritual act of service. In other words, whatever you're doing... If, if you offer it up to God, it's considered worship. And so you can, uh, you can be cooking. If you offer it up to God, it's worship. You can be cleaning the house. You know, I was talking to somebody uh, after the first service, and they said, We're gonna, I'm going to go home and I have to go study for a test for school. And I said, you know what? Pray about that. Offer that up to God as your spiritual act of worship. And he said, you know what? That's exactly what I have to do because without God, he goes, I just don't think I could pull this off. You know, anything that you do that you offer up to God, is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is not music. Music is worship when it's offered up to God. Singing is not worship. Singing is worship if it's offered up to God. You know, worship is not baptism. You know, if you're baptized and you offer that up to God in obedience to Him, that's your spiritual act of worship. And so whatever you do, if you offer that up to God, it's your act of worship. Worship is not just something that happens as a result of coming together and being in a building. We don't worship together on Sunday and then wait to get together again to worship again next Sunday. And so it's not a, a weekly ritual. It's something that we do every day, all the time, as we wake up each day and focus our lives on God. Offer your bodies up as spiritual acts of service, of worship. You know, and I don't think it's an accident that God um, really picked David who was one of the greatest worship leaders throughout history, to teach us about worship before there was even a building that was built. You know, last week, Pastor Dan talked about the fact that that first building was built, that first temple was built by Solomon, David's son. David would rally the troops together and take up an offering for it, but his son Solomon would be the one that actually built the temple. But interestingly enough, David's the one that really ends up emerging as the greatest worship leader that ever lived. You know, he wrote more than half the Psalms, including the Psalm that we're going to look at um, today in Psalm 57. Uh, David's story begins uh, in the book of 1 Samuel, 
I think most people are probably familiar with David because he's well known as the, uh, the young boy that killed the, uh, the Philistine giant Goliath with a sling and a stone. Um, that story uh, is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David's story actually begins earlier than that, um, but he is at one point selected by God to become the next king of Israel. Um, there was a point where um, the Israelite people didn't have kings or no presidents and kings and those kind of things. Um, God's people were overseen by prophets and judges, and uh, Samuel was the last uh, prophet and judge over the people, and the people were looking around. And they said, hey, we want a king like everybody else. And said, so God said, okay. And so Saul becomes the first king. He's displeasing in God's eyes. And so there's a replacement king that is needed to be selected. And so the prophet Samuel is talking with God, and, and these men are coming before uh, God and Samuel, and uh, there's just no replacement king for Saul to be found. And then they come across David. They come across David, and God tells Samuel, that's the one. That's the guy that I want to set aside to become the next king of Israel. Take him aside and anoint him. And so David's anointing, his, his, his being set apart for God's purpose, really begins in chapter 16. We see him kill a Philistine, uh, giant Goliath, in chapter 17. and verse 18, because of God's anointing, God's hands on David's life, everything that David does is done with success. And so King Saul recognizes that, and, and so he puts him out front in his army, because any time David goes out and do some, does something, there's this victory. And so Saul's liking that. So Saul, in one way, is kind of using David uh, to accomplish all of his plans. But something happens along the line there in that David becomes the one that people start to look at. It's like, hey, man, look at all these great things David's doing. Now, Saul's the king, but David is the one that's getting all the attention. And as a result of that, King Saul becomes jealous of David. Now, I want to just share a passage with you. Listen to what happens in 1 Samuel in chapter 5, uh, beginning in our first, Sam, uh, first Samuel uh, chapter, what chapter right here? We're in chapter uh, 18, and we're looking at uh, verse 5. It says, Whatever Saul said, sent David to do, he did it successfully. So successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. I mean, you know, David was just doing these great things, and everybody was happy with him. Uh, a little bit earlier, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from their homes. Uh, they came out from the town of Israel to meet King Saul, and they were singing praises to King David. And so what happens is, you know, King Saul returns, and everybody comes out to greet him and his army, and what are they doing? Oh, Saul is great, or, or David is great. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And so everybody comes out to greet Saul, but they're singing praises to David. And as a result of that, it says that Saul was angry. The refrain that they were singing and giving him credit with killing all these people made Saul angry. And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And so Saul liked using David because he was getting the job done, but his jealousy starts to run away with him. And it gets actually worse because Saul has a daughter, and the daughter falls in love with David. And so that really is going to get his goat, right? And so what happens is uh, later in verse 20, it says Saul's daughter, uh, Michael, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. He was pleased because he said to himself, I will give her to him 
so that she might be a distraction, that she would be a snare to him and the Philistines would come over against him and he'd be distracted and he will no longer find success. And so Saul's jealousy runs so deep that he actually is excited about the fact that he's going to be able to use his daughter to distract David and bring about his downfall. But that doesn't happen. God's hand of anointing continues to be on David. And finally, Saul just snaps and says, I am tired of this. I'm just going to kill him. And down in chapter 19, it says, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Just go kill him. I'm tired of this. Take him out of the picture. But uh, Jonathan was very fond of David, and so he warned him. He said, my father is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. And so that's the backdrop for Psalm 57. If you would, if you brought your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Psalm 57. I'd like to read that together with you. But interestingly enough, it opens up actually with the description of where Saul is. Beginning in chapter 1, it says that it's a song of David. David wrote it. And it says, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. And so when he fled from Saul into the cave, he writes this psalm. And he starts out like this. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until this disaster has passed. I cry out to the God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and he saves me. He rebukes those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth and spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp as swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they are the ones that are going to fall into it. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. Awake my harp. Awake my lyre. I'm going to awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O God, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love. Reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, among the heavens. Let your glory be known all among the earth. And so here we have King David the soon-to-be king, sitting in a cave in the middle of the desert. He's he's fled from Saul, who's trying to kill him. He's being pursued by 3,000 people, and he's stuck in this cave. And while he's there, he gives us this psalm that really reflects what it means to worship God in the midst of our turmoil. In the midst of this trial, all these tribulations, of all the stuff that's going on, the greatest worship leader who would ever live models for us what I find uh, to be four essentials what it means to have genuine, true worship before God. And the first lesson I think that we can learn from David from this psalm is that we need to worship God in humility. Humility is an important essential of our worship. Humility is understanding that we are powerless without God. Now listen to what David says in Psalm 57. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your ring until that disaster is passed. You'll have mercy on me in a sense that this is happening to me. Please take it away. You know, I turn this over to you. Please take it to me. He cries out to God, please take this away. 
you know, it would have been really easy for David. There's a couple of guys in the cave with him. And it would have been really easy for David to stand up and, 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 and muster the troops, right? I mean, it would be easy for him to say, hey, guys, remember when I killed that Philistine Goliath with just a little stone? Let's take these guys. We can do it. I mean, David could have mustered up the troops. He could have reminded them of God's faithfulness. He could have reminded them that, hey, God's hand of anointing is on me. Nothing's going to happen to us. I mean, David could, in his own strength, have tried to tackle this situation, but that's not what he does. He cries out to God with an air of humility. Have mercy on me, O God. And that's not something that happens naturally. That's not the first thing that we usually think of when we have a problem is, is how to be humble. It is so easy for us to try and take control and try to take care of things in our own strength, isn't it? That lack of humility is what causes the nicest man or woman to turn into a beast when somebody cuts them off in traffic. It's that lack of humility that causes a young child to snap back in disobedience to their parents and say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, that lack of humility causes us to do some of the strangest things. Last night I was uh, um, coming to work. I was going to I hadn't printed off the bulletin inserts yet, and I haven't worked on my sermon, so I got here early to finish some work, and our network was down. And so, uh, so I rebooted it a couple times, and I mean, I could not get that thing running. And I'm thinking, shoot, I have got a lot to do. And so I don't know, I'm messing with this thing for quite some time. And, I, and then at some point I'm starting to get frantic. I'm thinking, you know, we really don't need the inserts. I mean, we could, you know, and I'm really ready. I could probably do this without notes. And, and so... Uh, I'm sitting there, this is all going through my mind, and, and I'm really starting to panic. And so finally, you know, after some time, I got the thing back up, and I was like, Phew. well, I had worked myself up into a sweat. And so I went back, and I sat down at my desk, and oh, I thought, man, I need to go to the bathroom real quick. So I ran over, I went to the bathroom, and when I came back, the door was locked. My keys were in my office, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I already lost, I don't know how much time. I don't have time for this. And so now I'm really starting to freak out because this place is like Fort Knox. I mean, if you don't have a key, you don't get in. And I can't find anybody that's got a key. And so I'm running around thinking, the spare, I can't find the spare. I'm thinking, who can I call? And then I really started to get frustrated. I'm thinking, man, I've already lost all this time. And so there's, uh, uh, there's two guys working out in the lobby. It was uh, Nick and uh, Phil. I forget who else was out there. was somebody else out there. I forgot who it was. But I walked out there. I was like, do you have your keys? I need some keys to get into the building. I mean, it's like I'm really trying to get in. And, and so they're trying to help me. And so, and then, uh, oh, it was Brian Burke. He's like, I think I can get in there. And so he's trying to jimmy the lock. And I'm like, just kick it down. Just kick it down. I need in there. <laughs> it was funny because he walked back out. And I walked back out there. And those two guys are standing there looking at me. And I'm thinking, i got to get ready to teach on humility and, <laughs> and trusting on God. <laughs> and it just, it just hit me. It was like, oh, man, humility is one of those things. I really, it just doesn't come naturally for us because we want to be in control. But that's not what happens to King David. Just a quick story. This morning, I get up. I'm thinking, okay, this is not going to happen again. I walk to work. It's beautiful this morning. I'm going to walk to work. I'm going to get here. I'm going to work. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get all ready. So I sit down at my desk, and I, I look for my Bible and my notes, and they're home. And so I thought, and so I walked to work. I'm thinking, so I walked all the way home. And so now I'm stomping back. I'm thinking, shoot, twice in a row. <laughs> Humility does not happen easily. And, and, but David models for us what it means. Cry out to God. Have mercy on Take this from me and help me to be able to experience the feeling of resting in the shadow of your wings until this disaster has passed. Isn't that great? You know, if we're going to have genuine, sincere worship, 
we have got to be able to we get to the point where we can just, like David, cry out in humility and say, take this from me and give me your strength. You know, David throws himself down on God. He doesn't cling to his rights as the anointed one. He doesn't demand that God work in his behalf. He doesn't fall back on his own strength and say, I killed the Philistine. I can take care of this as well. He falls back on God. Humility is when instead of clinging to our own rights and demanding our own way, we turn our eyes towards God in spite of our circumstances and who else is watching. You know, it kind of reminds me of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. We'll get to this verse in a second, but there's two guys that go off to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. And the Pharisee gets up and he stands and the Bible says he prayed about himself. God, I, I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here. I'm glad I'm not like the sinner and the tax collector. You know, I'm glad I'm not a robber or an evildoer or an adulterer. I fast twice, twice a week. I give, I give a tenth of everything that I own. You know, so he goes on. And then in verse 13, it, it kind of looks over to the tax collector. The tax collector is standing off at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, when we realize the holiness of God and we understand, you know, the condition of our hearts, it should move us into a position of humility in a sense that God is extolled and we're made low. And that is one of the first elements of really experiencing true, lasting worship. It's modeled by David in this psalm. And I think it's one of the first elements that we need to have if we're really going to experience worship. You know, David didn't have to do that. You know, David could have found his security in that cave. That cave was a secure cave. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel 24, Saul would go in there to relieve himself. Saul went in to go to the bathroom, and David you know, snuck up there and cut a little piece of his robe off to use for a point later. But that cave was a secure point. You know, it, was, it was a place that he could, he could find his refuge. God, I put my refuge in the security of this cave. I'm safe in here. But he's not. You know, that's not what he does. He finds his refuge in God. And that's what the last part of that verse was about. I will take refuge in you in the shadow of your wings until this disaster has passed. When we have an attitude that lacks humility, we're magnifying our own greatness. We cannot magnify the greatness of God and the greatness of ourselves at the same time. In a broken spirit, a repentant heart that cries out to and seeks God is where we really find humility and powerful worship. I think the second essential element that we find uh, and David's worship is his obedience. You know, David was um, obedient. You know, if David had wanted safety and security in his life um, and had comfort, he could have had those things. He could have said when Samuel came to him, you know, eh, I don't know if I want to be king. You know, that's just, uh, you know, let Saul be king. I, I don't know if I, w- I want to do that. You know, um, all that danger, all, this tr- all the trouble that comes with being king, I'm just not interested in that. But he didn't say that. You know, what he did was he allowed God to work in him and through him, and he allowed God to set him apart so that God could accomplish his purposes. He was obedient. It was out of his commitment, out of his his willingness to allow God to use him in that way that we find psalm after psalm after psalm, including this psalm that we're looking at this morning, that helps us to really understand what it means to worship God. Look at verse 4, and this is on your outline as well. David cries out, I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are like spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp as swords. 
They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. You know, David did not have to endure this. He could have just said, forget this. I want nothing to do with it. You know, where are you in life this morning? I mean, what are some of the things that you feel are working against you? Maybe it's your job, your lack of a job. Maybe it's a relationship. There are circumstances in our life that really can distract us from able to worship and experience the fullness of God. There are things that God brings about in our life that really mold and shape our character and enable us to really experience what it means to be dependent on Him. Don't dismiss those things. The point is this. If we choose a path of comfort, we choose a path of security and safety, instead of living sacrificially for God, that's how our worship is going to be reflected. If we're always choosing the path of least resistance, our worship is going to be dry, worldly, and uh, unreal. You know, we can't ask others to trust God unless we really trust God ourselves. We can't be obedient to what God's called us to do unless, uh, uh, unless we rely on God and model that for others. You can't tell your kids to be obedient when, when you're not obedient. We, if we're going to tell people to be obedient, we have to be obedient as well. And this is reflected in how David worships. If we do what David did in obedient to God's call, regardless of the cost, you know, when we come together in this place each morning, we're going to be able to experience deep, real worship because we're going to be praising God as a result of what he's doing in spite of our circumstances. When you put yourself in a position to really be dependent on God, it just opens up the experience and genuineness of your worship. You are really grateful for what God is doing in and through your life when you put yourself in that kind of a position. You know, when we worship in spirit and truth like David did, we're going to live each day with the power and the reality of God working in our life. I love coming together. I love Sunday morning. But I also like stopping in the middle of the week to get together with a group of guys to go through a Bible study because I need to get recharged during the week as well. I love waking up and starting my day with a devotion. You know, there's times when uh, things will be happening during the day and, and I, if I can just stop and pray, it just, God just takes that away and really enables me to experience a fullness of my relationship with Him. We've got some uh, daily breads um, out at the small group table in the lobby. I just want to encourage you that if you don't have a devotion life or if you're looking for something to just kind of guide you on a daily basis with regard to reading the Bible and prayer, to pick one of those up, they are so fascinating just to see how when you start your day in God's presence, how He really strengthens you and inspires you and gives you genuine worship. You know, we're not just sitting around waiting for heaven. John 10.10 says Jesus came so we can have life and have it to the full. You know, we can experience genuine relationship on a daily basis like David did when we are obedient to God's call on our life. Obedience is an attitude of our heart. And David modeled this for him uh, in worship. You know, if you were outside working last night, you were outside, it was hot yesterday, and if you were outside working in the yard and you were hot and tired and sweaty and, and you came in and, you know, uh, you walked over and I said, man, you look hot and tired. Why don't you go get yourself something to drink? And you went over and got a drink. Is that being obedient? You know, I told you to go get something to drink and you did it, right? That's not really obedience because that's something that you were going to do anyway. You know, in one sense, you know, maybe you could argue the other way. But if you came in and you were hot and tired and you were thirsty and you were parched and I said, hey, I'm working over here right now. Why don't you go sit down over there? You can get something to drink in just a second. And you did it. That would be obedience, right? Obedience carries with it an element of sacrifice in a sense that, hey, I'm giving something up. I'm doing something because you asked me about that. 
you know, it's interesting because, you know, I'll talk to people about, you know, whether it's a decision in their life, whether it's, you know, something like, you know, something as simple as baptism. I mean, you know, there's things that we do that even though we're uncomfortable with them, we do those anyway because they're a mark of obedience. You know, we get up in the morning and we spend time in God's Word because of a mark of obedience. Now, we should want a desire to do those things, but if we can get the feet walking, the head will follow. I mean, there are things that we just need to do out of obedience, and God honors that. And I can't think of a better example of obedience than what we find in the life of Christ. Um, he says in Philippians 2, 5 and, uh, through 8, you know, our attitude should be the same as Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And it goes on to say, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. You notice how obedience follows humility? He humbled himself and became obedient, even to death on the cross. You know, it was because of Jesus' ability to focus on his desire to be obedient that he was really able to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish for us on the cross. And so, you know, I don't know what circumstance you're in today or what's going on in your life, but if you will trust in God and look to him and be obedient to what he's called you, you will be able to experience genuine worship. And it's this worship that's obedience that, that Jesus modeled for us that really is able to see him through what God has for him. You know, it's because of his obedience that Jesus is able to hang on that cross and look down at all those people that crucified him and say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's because of Jesus' obedience he's able to breathe with his last breath and say, it is finished. In a sense, that obedience was his ability to continue to do what he needed to do in light of God's call in his life. And that's what David's doing as he's sitting in this cave. He's sitting in there. He's crying in this cave, crying out to God for mercy because of his humility. He's stuck in that cave enduring these circumstances because of his obedience to God's call in his life. And then I think there's a third essential that David models for us, and that's the importance of being able to uh, reflect as he thinks about his worship. Reflection is our hoping in the purposes of God. You know, David would write in uh, verse 2, he says this, I'm crying out to the God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. My heart, as a result, is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast, and I will sing and make music. And underline that word fulfills, who fulfills in me. You know, a more literal translation of that word fulfill would be who completes me. To God who completes his purpose for me. Or rather, a God who finishes his work through his purposes in me. And so that idea of being fulfilled is being made complete or having a work finished and brought about as a result of our obedience. There's a movie with Tom Cruise. It's... uh, Jeremy McGuire, there's a scene in there, Tom's crying, and he's watching the movie, and there's a scene that I, I don't know who the woman is, but um, he, it's his wife or girlfriend. But anyway, the guy goes, you complete me. You know, there's a sense of, you know, I, I love joking about that passage with Carol. There's times when I look over at Carol, and I'll just, I'll just say, you complete me. You know, it's kind of a little joke that we got going. But there's a sense that, you know, God in his infinite wisdom has given me a helper and just, I am so grateful for that. There's a sense that I, I am made more whole because of who I am and my relationship with Carolyn. But you know what? Carolyn can't meet all of my needs. Carolyn can't complete me in that way. In reality, we're only complete when we understand our need for our relationship with Christ. And we only understand God and where we sit. And, and our completeness is really found today in who we are in Christ. 
you know, we experience freedom in this country, but we are free in Christ in a sense. We can worship Him anywhere, anytime, anyway. We are made complete as He accomplishes His purposes in and through us. And as a result, we're able to remain steadfast. We're able to remain steadfast. You know, David's coming before God. He's reflecting on his circumstances and his life. He knows that God has a purpose and a plan for him. And as a result, he's steadfast. You know, steadfast. You can circle the word steadfast. That is a great word. Steadfast is unmoving. It's secure. It's fixed. It's stable. It's an unrelenting trust in God and his purposes. And for David, that steadfastness enables him to worship and to sing and make music. And so this idea of reflecting on our circumstances and seeing them in light of God's design and plan for our purpose in our life really enables us to experience genuine, heartfelt worship, the kind that David experienced while he was sitting in that cave. You know, we took communion this morning. It was an opportunity for us to stop and, and to reflect and to give thanks for who we are in Christ. It was an opportunity for us to remember that through Christ's death on the cross, we are brought into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so that reflection time was an important part of how we worship. You know, we put the words up on the screen. It's an opportunity for us to look at the words and to internalize them and to reflect on them. We put the passages up here. We've got them on an insert. Hopefully you bought your Bible, pick up the daily bread. But we look at these God's words as a part of our devotion. We don't just read. I mean, you can do Bible reading mechanically in a sense that you can read something, and at the end, you don't even remember what you read. And so reflection, though, is stopping and thinking through what God has for you. For David, it was in spite of his circumstances. And when we are able to reflect, it really brings about a genuine worship. I am really grateful for what Christ accomplished for me on the cross. I'm serious about that. I am, praise God. I mean, if I look at where my life was and I look at where it is right now, I am so grateful that God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to call me into a relationship with himself. That is something that motivates me and inspires me to experience genuine worship. And without that reflection, we just can't worship God in that way. You know, I think Jesus is probably uh, the best model for what it means to, uh, to reflect on God's purposes in that way. He says in Matthew 26, he goes off to pray. He goes off a little further uh, by himself. And he falls with his face to the ground. And he prays, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. As Jesus reflects on his crucifixion, and he reflects on where he's heading, it causes him to turn in an intimate way to his heavenly Father. And as a result of that reflection that he was able to remain steadfast and endure the cross. It enabled him to be able to look at those people and say, forgive them. It enabled him to look at them and say, it is finished. You know, that passage from Romans 12:1 was a reminder for us that we are to offer our bodies up as our spiritual act of worship, our spiritual act of service. And there's a sense that the only way that we can do that is to, is to focus on and reflect on the hope that we have is a result of who we are in Christ. And so David is sitting in the middle of this cave. He's in the middle of the desert. He's being pursued by these men that, that want to kill him. And, and he reflects on his situation. And he cries out to God, who is willing to fulfill his purposes in and through him. And, and there is where David finds his hope, and where he's able to experience genuine, real worship. 
And so David models for us humility. He models for us obedience. He models for what it means to reflect in our worship. And I think the fourth thing that I think he models for us is focus. David models for us the ability to focus on the greatness of God. You know, in spite of everything that's going on with David here, in spite of everything that's going on, look what he says in this next verse. In verse seven through uh, 8 through 9. Awake my soul. Awake harp and lair. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. I mean, look what's happening to David there. He is just going nuts for God. Awake my soul. I love the exclamation point. When you see an exclamation point, that means there's some excitement. Awake me. And I'll let his harp and Mary. I mean, he's going to be making some noise. I'm going to awaken the dawn. I am excited. I'm going to praise you among the nations. I'm going to sing of you among the people. David's focus on God really enables him to exalt the greatness of God. And I'm not sure what happens to us uh, as we get older. Because I tell you, it's so much fun. When you get around somebody that understands their need for a relationship with Christ and, and they come into a relationship with Christ, they are fun to be around. They're just excited about their faith. They have discovered this news. I can remember when I first became a believer, I was like, how come everybody doesn't know this? I mean, really? I mean, it was, it was like this light went on, and it was contagious. And you know, it's funny. That's where I think everybody starts. There's this enthusiasm. There's this excitement. And there's just this, our souls awaken. And then we start to get old. <laughs> and something happens. It starts chipping off our our shoulders and we start being more aware of people around us and what they're thinking. And it, it just, there's just something about David's lifestyle here. It just is, it emulates what it means to be completely focused on God and not concerned about you or anything or anybody around you. You know, I was talking to my wife, Carolyn, uh, last week. Um, she was one of the uh, helpers for VBS and she took the kids around from classroom to classroom. And it was so much fun to talk to her because she'd come home and she would just have story after story about these kids and about how excited they were about the things they were learning. She said she came out on day two. She was, uh, uh, Tracy Stanger was in one of the classrooms, and she was teaching uh, about Jesus being a king. And she was teaching on the miracles of Jesus and, and what it meant to worship Jesus. And, and uh, Tracy asked the kids, you know, you know, what's your favorite Superman or your superpower? And so they were all doing Spider-Man and Batman. They are all coming up with their superheroes and superpowers. And then she taught them about Jesus and just about his miracles and about how he was, you know, the Savior. And, and so at the end of the lesson, all the kids are excited about Jesus. I mean, they are just... They're excited about Jesus, and they come out of this class, and it was neat because at the end of every day, they come in here and they sing. I mean, these kids are singing and excited about Jesus, and they're doing sprinkler dances, and they're jumping around on the stage. They are just excited about who Jesus is. And it's funny because we had parent night Thursday night, and then we, had, we did some things Friday night. It was funny because all the kids are up on stage, and then they invite the parents. Parents, stand up with your kids and, and celebrate with your kids, and the and I'm not doing the sprinkler dance. The sprinkler dance. I mean, there's just the kids are out there jumping around. And then you look out and all the, the parents are like, mm, I don't know. It is hard. It is hard to keep focused on Jesus. It's hard to keep focused on God in the midst of our worship. You know, there's times when I'm standing upside. And, it, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, if I'm standing in the back uh, or if I'm standing over here, you know, I like to jump around. You know, I love worship. But there's something about sitting right here and having all the people behind you. It's like all of a sudden it's like, I don't know. People are like, I'm nuts or something. There's something inhibiting 
about us is we start to lose and take our focus off of God. You know, when you're focused on God, you can't help but be excited. You can't help but tell people about what God's done in your life. In Acts 1.8, that's what it's talking about here. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. If you are a Christ follower, if you are a Christian, if you have a relationship with Christ, you are a witness. And that witness is your ability to tell someone else about what Christ has done in your life. It's not about leading them to Christ. It's not about having great words. It's not about being an evangelist. And It's about doing nothing but telling somebody how Christ has changed your life. And so if you're a Christ follower, your life should be changed. And when you tell that with somebody else, you're being a witness. And you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through you to accomplish that. And that's God's plan for taking this message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so we're as Christ followers. Because of our excitement, our enthusiasm, and our awakenedness in God, we talk to our neighbors, we talk to our friends, we talk to our coworkers at work. You know, we look for opportunities to tell other people about what God's doing in our life. We're part of a conference of churches that is intentional about reaching our community for Christ. Springbrook exists to reach our Judea. We're here so that people in our community can know about Christ. Our conference of churches is, is, is identifying leaders, raising up church planters, and planting churches so that we can reach the United States, our continent, to the ends of the earth. We're part of a movement of churches that is excited about what God's doing in and through our lives. That's our vision and our mission at Springbrook. We want to build passionate followers of Jesus Christ. Passionate being the key word. And so when we're focused on God, that enables us to experience genuine worship in a way that the greatness of God is proclaimed and made known around, uh, around all the earth. And so as you look at David's life, as you look at this sitting in this cave, it's amazing to think about the persecution, the sitting in the cave, and oh, the poor me. And just, I mean, you think about his circumstances, and you just watch the movement of humility. If you just watch his movement as he goes through these, um, this idea of you know, being humble before God, as he goes through that being understanding he's being obedient to God's life, to God's call, he moves through these stages of humility, obedience, reflection, and ultimately focus that results in powerful, genuine worship. And so as we continue this series through Psalms this month, it's so important, I think, for us to really just begin by starting by focusing on this idea of worship and what it means to understand who we are in light of who we are in Christ. You know, this morning people are either Christ followers or they're not Christ followers. You know, John 3.16 says this, God loved the world. He loved it so much that he gave his one and only son. He loves everybody. But only those that have a relationship with Christ, he calls his children. God, he loved the world. He gave it his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so if you have not come to the point that you understand your need for a relationship with Christ, if you are not at this place, if you have not believed in him, you are not going to be able to experience the life and life to the full that Jesus promised in 1010. If you don't have that, you need to start there. If you want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ, please let me know how to do it. I would love the opportunity to talk with you about that. There's a uh, response section on the insert down at the bottom. And I just want to encourage you that if you don't have a relationship with Christ, start there. If you do have a relationship with Christ, then are you experiencing full life? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come 
that they might have life and have it to the full. The they being people that have a relationship with him. Jesus came so that his followers could have life and have it to the full. And so when you think about worship in your own life, would you describe your worship as full? Not just on Sunday morning, but what happens when you leave here? What happens on Monday morning? What happens in your devotion? You know, are you experiencing life to the full that Jesus promised you in John 10.10? You know, there's a welcome slip that's attached to that uh, program that you received, and there's uh, some numbers across the top. And I just want to encourage you that if you are a Christ follower, as you think about those first four areas of worship that David modeled for us, which one of those four would you think is a growth area of opportunity for you? I kind of shared with you my humility. You know, that's something I, I don't know why I have the need to explain myself. You know, things are, uh, you know, I do that with my kids. You know, I'm constantly having to think through, you know, why I do what I do and how can I be more humble in a sense that I just apologize. You know, if something goes wrong, I always have an explanation for why I did what I did. You know, sometimes I just need to get to the point where I can just be humble, say I'm sorry. You know, humility is something that I'm really working on. It's easy for some people to be obedient. You know, my wife, Carolyn, is, uh, is pretty black and white. She follows directions. If it says, mark this box, she marks that box. You know, so some people do okay with rule following. You know, some people don't have a struggle with obedience. But for some people, if you tell me what to do, man, forget it. You can ask nicely, maybe. <laughs> you know, so as you think about maybe reflection, are you distracted in life? Are you distracted by your circumstances? Or are you reflecting on them and looking for what God's purpose is in, in, in that for you. you know, as you think about your focus, are you distracted by other things in this life or is your purpose in life to proclaim the greatness of God? So how do those things motivate you as you think about offering your body up as a living act of worship? And if you don't have a relationship with Christ, it really begins there. If you want to understand what happens in church on a Sunday morning, it doesn't make sense apart from Christ. I mean, really, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, if I didn't have anything, if I didn't understand what, what a relationship with Christ was, I would walk into this church and I'm thinking, what are these people drinking? I mean, it makes no sense apart from who you are in Christ. And so if, if you have questions about what it means to worship, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, what it means to be a Christ follower, and what genuine worship really looks like, it begins with understanding how to have a relationship with Christ. If you want to know more about that, you can circle the number five on your uh, welcome slip. Now, there's not a place for you to indicate that there, but, you know, um, if you want me to pray for you next week, you can just give me one of those numbers, and uh, I'll get a list of uh, everybody that uh, indicates an interest here. And if you just want me to pray for you next week, I would be more than happy just to pray that God would unleash his power and and work in your life. If you've got questions about relationship with Christ, I would pray that God would just continue to draw him to yourself. And so I'll just pray for you. If you'd like the opportunity to maybe talk with me or somebody about any of these different areas, I'm just saying, uh, please put contact me on your uh, welcome slip, and I'll follow up with you next week. I'd like to invite you to, uh, as we just kind of bring this portion of our service to a close, to kind of pray with me. Um, I'm going to ask the ushers um, to come forward. We're going to collect those welcome slips from you, as well as our tithes and offerings. Um, But let's just take some time to to give thanks to God and to uh, ask him to continue this great work in us that he started. Father, I just want to thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for uh, David's life. Thank you for his obedience. Uh, and that we have all the Psalms that we can reflect on and learn how to, uh, to worship you in a way that uh, David modeled for us. And God, I know there's a lot of things that work against us. Uh, there's a lot of things that are circumstantial that can distract us. 
Uh, but God, I just pray that you will continue to capture our hearts for you. We want to be like David, men and women after your own heart. I just pray that you strengthen us, uh, God, so that we can fulfill the purposes that you have for us. I just thank you for all the ways you've provided uh, for our ministry. And God, we just want to lift our tithes and offerings up to you this morning. We want to be good stewards with all you've entrusted to our care. God, so that you can be glorified and the good news of Christ can be known uh, throughout our community. I just thank you for our time together. Uh, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as our ushers are collecting uh, those tithes and offerings and welcomes,